Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. It's good to see you all. It was so good to listen to the offertory. It wasn't very complicated, was it? Did it seem complicated to you? Raise your hand if you think it was a complicated offertory. So any of you could just come up and do that, right? (laughs) I was thinking as they were playing, of course, you think of the words of the song, the songs that they were playing, and you think about how uh, we have music today. I was talking to Philip earlier today about music. And what's worth singing about? And you know, when you, when you come down to it and you start to take away the things we think, sing about and order them in order of their importance, you realize very quickly that if someone has received the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, that's the thing. It's like it's on a page all by itself. And then anything else is kind of incidental over here as a theme. And I'm not even talking about those themes that are immediately sinful and wicked. I'm just talking about those themes that we would accept as, you know, patriotism and and love and, you know. And to think that one day we will sing in some type of chorus in in a place where the the, the uh, inspiration for the song will be present with us in a way that we can't even comprehend or begin to think about yet. It's such a beautiful, beautiful meditation for us. And I am so thankful for our musicians and the work that they do. I know you are also. This morning, um, well, let me back up. Last year, I think it was at the annual meeting, we talked about our desire to uh, start an emphasis in our church on gathering people and calling them to come into the church, opening our doors and inviting our friends and neighbors and our, our family members and our co-workers to church. And I think just as we were developing that, we also had the uh, realization of the necessity that we need to build on. So we kind of interrupted all that with a capital campaign, and the capital campaign went on. But if you remember, we did a sermon series on Jesus, Friend of Sinners, and that was associated with that. And then we decided that through the capital campaign and through Advent, we would just kind of put that whole emphasis on hold so to, somewhat, and we would just work administratively in the office. So we did something, we told you we called it getting our act together, And I'm not sure how well we did with it, but we worked on getting our act together. So uh, things that we did in the office, like business cards got made that you could hand out. Have you seen the new business cards? They're general. Uh, Can I get somebody making sure after the service that we have business cards put out for everybody? We'll put them on that brown ledge in the entryway. And you can take business cards. They're general. They're, they're, uh, what's the word? They're not specific. Inert. They're generic. You can take these and they have the times of the service, they have phone numbers, they have a map, and you can hand them out to your friends. So get those. 
You notice probably that we actually put a sign on the side of the building. Jody Killingsworth spearheaded that with some others, and it's a fantastic thing. So, um, so we no longer have county police vans dropping prisoners off. There are other things that we've done and that we're in the process of doing to help in getting our act together so that we can administratively work to have new people come into the church, and that's very, very important. But now it's the new year, and now it's time to talk about the work that all of us have to do, the work of gathering, the work of inviting. So we're going to have a new sermon series that starts next week on the parables of Jesus, and that's going to be very good. And it's going to be something that will be easy for us to bring our friends and family members. And, you know, when Jesus talks, it's good stuff. And so we can bring our friends and invite them in and and they can hear about him. This morning I want to introduce the subject of gathering. This isn't the first of the series on the parables. This is just about us gathering. This is kind of to, to look at the next year and to think about the work that we have in front of us. You'll probably hear about this in your small groups where you'll talk about small group goals about inviting people to church. Uh, We actually would, we talked as the pastors and and staff, and I know that you probably think this is very aggressive, but we'd like to see by this time next year a hundred new faces in our church. And I don't mean those hundred babies that will be born, okay? Seventeen women on the list that we know about that are expecting babies right now, which is wonderful. So, yes, praise God. But we want to invite and we want to gather. I want to start off this morning by talking about God's, God's own character and the fact that God himself is a gatherer. And I'm going to give some four, four things about God's gathering, and I want you to understand I'm going to give some scripture verses with them that you'll just have to follow along. If you want to jot them down, you can. But listen, if you go through the scripture and study the verses that connect to these ideas I'm going to talk about concerning gathering, you'll see that it's full of scriptures. There are are many, many places that talk about God and his, his work of gathering people to himself. And so we have in Psalm 106, the psalmist is praying, and he's saying, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations. To give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. You have the Jews, the people of God, singing songs and psalms and prayers, saying to God, gather us. Because they know that God is about gathering. He has said to them through the prophets over and over again how he wants to gather them together. How in their repentance and in his discipline, the result will be one day that he will gather them together, that he will bring them together under his care. But it's not just the Jews, it's not just the people of Israel ethnically. But Isaiah 56 says that he expands that, and he says also foreigners will join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord. In verse 7 it says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then we see this in the book of Acts as God really explodes the expansion of his gathering into the Gentiles when he sends Peter to Cornelius. 
And Peter's response is, whoa. He says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And so God's heart is gathering people to himself. Secondly, when God gathers his people, he does so through his son, Jesus Christ. He does so through Jesus. John 12, now judgment is upon the world, verse 31. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Jesus is signifying the way in which he will die. He says, I will have to be lifted up. Literally, he's going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to be crucified. And he says, if that happens, I will draw all men to myself. I'll collect them. I'll pull them to me. I'll gather them. They will come to God through me. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature and the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He made, them, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God reconciles us to himself in Jesus Christ. He gathers us through Jesus Christ. He makes our sin to be imputed, put on Christ, and he takes Christ's righteousness and he imputes it, he puts it on us, and he sees the righteousness of Christ on us in that process, and he, and he judges Christ and crushes him with judgment on the cross for our sin. A great exchange, demonstrating his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gathers his people through Christ, and he gathers his people using preachers and preaching of, the, of a message. And so in that same passage, it says that God is, has given to preachers the ministry of reconciliation, that he has committed to them the word of reconciliation, that they are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us, says Paul. He's making an appeal through ministers. This morning's scripture lesson, Ephesians 3, was a providential lesson for today because I was going to be preaching this sermon on gathering and on the work of preachers and on the work of the church, as you'll see in a minute. And the fact was that our scripture reading in sequence was Ephesians 3. When I was in college, I was studying vocal music. And in my second year, I just knew that wasn't what I was supposed to do. Now, as backstory, you should know that when I was a child, I was raised in the church, and I always wanted to be a pastor. And I always wanted to be a preacher. And so my wife has a scrapbook that my mother gave her one time that has actually a little booklet in it that's a compilation of sermons that I wrote. And I wish I could have dug it out for you for today, you could have looked at it, and we would have laughed together. It's quite embarrassing, okay? The way a child perceives preaching can be quite embarrassing sometimes. Mine certainly was. 
But that was, a, that was a direction in my life from when I was a young child. And then I'm in college and I'm praying and I'm saying, God, I just don't think this is the direction for my life. Would you show me? And God used this very passage, Ephesians 3, to show me that he desired for me to be a minister. The thing he had been moving me toward since I was a child, to be a pastor so that I could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. God uses pastors and a message preached. But in the context of all of that, and you know, of course, that the scripture says that without preaching, people can't have faith. They can't know. They can't believe. They have to hear. And so we're supposed to pray that God will send preachers. But in the context of all of that, swirling around it, God uses us. He uses the whole church. We are all part of that process. We are all used by him to draw men and to invite men and to gather men to himself, to bring them to hear preaching, to speak to them of God's work in our lives. There's a passage I was reading in preparation, Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, you have the Pharisees Uh, You have Jesus having cast out demons, and then you have the Pharisees talking and saying, uh, he casts out demons by the devil. He belongs to the devil. Now, that was a scary, scary thing that they said, because if you remember what Jesus said to them afterwards, he said, look, there are sins you can commit that are big sins, but listen, that's 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 the top of the heap. That sin is all by itself. To, To assign satanic influence to the Holy Spirit is just, gone, you've gone beyond the pale. But in the context of telling them that, and in, in the context of teaching them and, and uh, warning them, and putting the fear of God into them, he says something very in, in, interesting and incidental. He says, whoever does not gather with me scatters, in verse 30. So he's basically saying in the context of that exchange that there are two teams, his team and the other team. And the work of his team is gathering. And the work of the other team is the opposite. Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy. The work of the other team is to scatter, is to send people to the four winds, is to to drive them away from God and his mercy and the truth. But the work of Jesus Christ And the work of his church and the work of anyone that's on his side is to gather. Whoever is with me gathers, he says. And then in Matthew 5, very familiar passage, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our lives are to be worked as, as uh, illuminating signs, directors. Uh, we're, we're to be set up like a lighthouse, giving direction so that those who are being called by God will be gathered to him, that they can use us as, you know, what's the word, triangulate 
and use us to get to God. We're a light that's on a hill. A light on a lampstand, I'm sorry. Now these passages that deal with God's love of gathering and his work of gathering, that he gathers through his son, that he gathers through his servants, pastors, through preaching, that he gathers through the church, are all about God's gathering. And as I said, you can find many, many more on each of them. But I'm telling you them so that you understand and that you begin to feel the reality or the the responsibility of our lives to do the work of reconciling people to God, being ministers of reconciliation. Jesus was pleased in teaching about this to use in one place the analogy of fishing. And that is our passage this morning. To illustrate the work of gathering, Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And Jesus is saying to these fishermen, these first disciples that he calls, he's saying to them, look, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Join my team, and it won't be fish that you'll be fishing for anymore, it will be men you will be doing the work of gathering men to yourself. And so we teach our children to sing that song, right? I will make you fishers of men. How many of you know the song? Okay, a pretty good amount. I threatened Danny that I was going to sing it and have her do the hand motions for you. Come on. No. The hand motions are great. It's fly fishing, apparently, I think, in But to be a fisherman is to gather, and to be a fisher of men is to gather men to God, is to bring men to God. So this morning I want to make some observations to you about fishing, fishing for fish, and then connect those observations to fishing for men as, it's, as, they are, uh, as the connections can be applied in the scripture. So my first observation this morning is that to have, uh, you have to fish to catch fish. If you hate the feel, the smell, the patience required, and other attending realities and inconveniences of fishing, you are not likely to fish, and therefore you probably won't catch any. Right? Now, early in my life, I was very young, and my family went on a vacation. And my father worked in Buick Motors in Flint, Michigan, had, and he had a wife and seven children, and so vacations were an event, you know, in the old black station wagon. And so he had some friends in the shop, and they told him, Max, they said, listen, you've got a great uh, place to go. It's in Canada. We'll set you all up in it. It's just a really nice uh, cabin out in Canada. It's on a lake. It's beautiful. So we drove to Canada way on out there. And we get to this place and we find 
it's pretty rustic. So it has an outhouse, right? That's pretty rustic. You know, I'm the person that likes camping in one of those self-leveling RVs, right? But okay, it's camping. It has an outhouse. But then we get to the cabin and we go inside and there's this big pile of dirt and there's a chipmunk guarding it in the cabin. And my father just sat down and started laughing. And he, he thought to himself, those guys back at the shop, they're just having a great time right now, thinking about how they sent me to the Canadian wilderness with my family to live in this place. Well, the first fish I caught was off of a sinking dock on the lake, somewhat of a lake, beside that cabin. I was using a safety pin that my mother had bent and hooked onto some fishing line. With my brother there, I caught a fish, and at the end of the day, and at the end of a couple of days, both my younger brother and myself were completely covered with chiggers to the point that we had to cut the time short and go and get medical attention. Fishing can be inconvenient. It requires patience. And we have as our example our Heavenly Father who says that I am extremely patient. He says, in fact, I'm not slow about my promise, as some count slowness, but I'm patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so God lays out the truth about his, what stands behind his gathering, his love, his patience. He's patient with us. He doesn't want to destroy us in his wrath. And so he confesses that he's patient. And then we are supposed to be called to be patient. So in Galatians 6, it says, don't lose heart in doing good, for in due time you will reap if you don't grow weary. So while you have an opportunity, do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then when Paul is talking to Timothy and teaching him, he says, I charge you, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why did Paul have to say that to Timothy? Because he knew that the work of gathering and the work of caring for God's people would take patience. And it would be inconvenient. It would be hard. What does that mean? Well, it means what? It means actually not doing the thing you might want to do on any given day and going and talking to your neighbor or meeting somebody for lunch or meeting them for coffee and talking with them or picking them up in your car and giving them a ride to church or picking them up and giving them a ride to the Bible study or going and helping them by helping them to get groceries if they need help. Any number of things, hundreds of thousands of ways in which the work of gathering and loving those around us, being good to those around us, plays out in our lives. Secondly, if you're not willing to go near water, you probably won't catch any fish. And it's true that many of us don't want to actually get involved in fishing. It may be fear of water, 
It just may be that it takes a long time to get to that place. It's again kind of an inconvenience. But Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. Well, you get the idea. Send into. Send into. You have to go to where the work needs to be done. You know how it works when you get done with your garden in the summer. Heather, you have a garden, right? And you grow squash, right? And at the end of the summer when the squash is ripe, what happens? What happens is you sit in your kitchen and the squash plucks itself off the vine and it walks up the hill and it cuts itself up and it jumps into freezer bags and then it climbs into your freezer and it's all fine. (laughs) You have to go. You have to go. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel in Mark 16. We have to go to where people are and preach. Number three, if you don't know what kind of fish you're after, you likely won't catch any. You all know that fish are like this. Fish have their favorite habitat. Fish, uh, I think, probably live in different spots in lakes based on what kind they are and what size they are. Fish like certain kinds of foods and don't like certain kinds of foods. And if you don't know what kind of fish you're fishing for, then you probably won't catch anything. If you're just trying to catch everything generally, you probably won't catch anything. And so who is Jesus trying to gather? Who is he fishing for when he says, I'll make you fishers of men? Well, if he's fishing for me, I'll tell you who he's fishing for. He's fishing for a guy who's sinful. He's fishing for a guy who has to sing the Ten Commandments and as he sings them realizes again that surely I have broken these. Like sheep, I have gone astray. And again, I have to ask God to clothe me in the righteousness of Christ. That's me. Sinners. That's the fish Jesus was after. In fact, he says, it says in 1 Timothy 1.5, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I'm the chief one. In Matthew 9, Jesus goes and he calls Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. And after that, he goes to a dinner. And at the dinner are tax collectors and sinners. And those same Pharisees that accuse him of being the servant, the mouthpiece of Satan, then look at him and say, look at this guy. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus says to them, what? He says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. And he wasn't telling the Pharisees they were healthy. Right? Don't be deceived. But he says, it's not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not 
come to call the righteous, but sinners. I came to call sinners. Jesus came for me. He died for me. God intended me to be gathered to him. And I had nothing to commend myself to him. I didn't have anything to offer him but my sinfulness. And he demonstrated his love for me in that while I was a sinner, he sent his son to die for me. And he continues to demonstrate his love by forgiving my sins daily. So Jesus came to call sinners, but we think about our role in gathering and what do we immediately think we ought to do? Well, what's the criteria for us? Who should, we, who should we go and gather? Well, I know I want to gather wealthy people. I mean, Wayne Huck, come on. Do you have to talk about money? If we could just gather some wealthy people, that would be good, wouldn't it? I'm sure that's right up there on God's list. That's probably what Jesus meant when he said sinners, right? I came to save wealthy people, sinners. How about powerful people, influential people, famous people? You know, I, I, I would love to be a pastor at the church that's gathered the influential and famous people. It looks good on a resume, doesn't it? How about the intelligent people in Bloomington? Have you all read The Hobbit? I mean, the Hobbit, you know, not, not the movie Hobbit that you can buy at Sam's Club now, the new book form with the pictures. I mean, the old Hobbit that makes you grind your teeth as you're trying to figure out what he's trying to talk about. You all read that one. Are you intellectual enough so that I can hang out with you and gather you? I want to gather the easy fish, the, one that the ones that seem like they're already gathered, but they just need to gather a little closer to me. So they're going to church somewhere else. I want to gather them to our church. Never mind the fact that they might very likely be completely inoculated against the Holy Spirit, and that in gathering them, if they actually do come, I'll be frustrated up to here with them, because they don't care about what God says but I'll spend my time on gathering them because, you know, they're already so close. And listen, let me say as, as an aside, we have a lot of children, and the way people become inoculated against the Holy Spirit is through the hypocrisy and the lack of repentance and faith of their parents. And we end up raising children to be twice the children of hell as we are. So if you have children, you confess your sins to them. You tell them that you've sinned. You say to them, would you forgive me? You tell their mother in front of them, will you forgive me, honey, for that sin I committed against you? Will you forgive me, son, for committing that sin against your mother in front of you? Will you forgive me, daughter? 
and then live by faith with your children. Showing them your weakness. Last night I was on the phone with Pastor Bailey. He said, how are you? I said, I'm weak. Then I talked to my wife later. I said, pray for me. Pastor Bailey prayed for me. I said, my wife, I'm weak. Pray for me. And then this morning I get here. I'm sitting in the pew before the first service out in the lobby, and Lucas Weeks comes by, and he prays for me. I'm weak. I sin so much that the work I do of calling you to God, I'm always plagued by the fact that I'm not worthy to do this. And it's a kindness and a privilege of God that he allows me to do it. But I don't want you to understand anything but that I'm not worthy to do it. And I'm weak. But are you any different? Parent, father, mother, your children should know the reality of who you are so that they can find that Savior that you found and that they can live by repentance and faith like you are, if in fact you are. Number four, don't make too much noise or you probably won't catch any fish. Now, fishermen don't typically set their boom box on the bank of the and then start boom, but boom, but boom with the subwoofer, boom, but boom, but boom, and dance around and put on a nice sequin jacket and flash around up on the bank. Because really, fish aren't looking for the fishermen, except for piranha. They're kind of indiscriminate. Fish are looking for the food they want. And so if you're there distracting the fish, they're never going to come around to bite the food. Well, look, we do this with our lives all the time. We're constantly uh, selfishly ambitious as we engage with other people. We're constantly trying to promote ourselves as we engage with them. And God says, no, no, no selfish ambition. Paul says, well, some men preach the gospel out of selfish ambition. He said, even with selfish ambition, thankfully, the word is true and there can be fruit, but the fact of the matter is it's a wicked thing. And it's not helpful generally. It's not about us, is it? We're not trying to get people to us. It's about the one that we found or who found us that we want to get them to. It's about Christ. And that brings us me to the fifth point. If you don't use the right bait, you probably won't catch any fish. I have another fishing story from an earlier day than the one I told you already. We would go on vacations with this other family, and the father of the family had a boat, and it was like six feet long. I mean, it might have been a little longer, but it was a tiny boat. We had the horrible habit of putting too many men in it and going out on choppy lakes, and it's a wonder, you know, that we're alive. But I remember going out, I was very little, I was with the big guys, and we went out on the boat. And I was begging, I wanted to fish, they had fishing poles, and you know, when you're taking the little guy along, you don't get very many opportunities to fish, and you just want to sit there and help the little guy fish, and he's, he's noisy, he's scaring the fish away, on and on and on. So finally, to shut me up, they gave me a, a hook, and it was a great big treble hook, I think that's what they're called, Lawrence, is that right? 
had three hooks on one, three barbs on one hook. It was about the size of an anchor. And then they hooked it through with some copper wire. And you know, when, you, when you're trying to cast copper wire, it doesn't work very well because the wire kind of stays in that shape like that. So you have to bend it out straight or else it goes right around the boat and hooks in somebody's ear. And they didn't put any bait on the hook. They just put it down in the water. And so I'm here, and as you can imagine, I caught a lot of fish that day. Now, I didn't have anything the fish wanted. The fish were looking at that, and they were thinking, huh, what do fish think when they see something like that in the water? What bait do we use when we gather people to Jesus Christ? Well, we use Jesus Christ. And the person I want to use to illustrate this is the woman at the well. She meets Jesus at the well, and she starts a conversation, or he starts a conversation with her, and he's talking to her. And, you know, okay, she's surprised that he's talking to her, and pretty soon, you know, she's chit-chatting, small talk, and he says, go call your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And he reads her mail, so to speak. He says, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're married to, or the man you live with now is not your husband. And she says, well, I perceive you're a prophet. And he goes on, and he introduces himself to her, and he says, I am the Messiah that you're looking for. I have the solution to your problem." And we think that we have solutions to people's problems that aren't Jesus. And so we'll put out any kind of bait you can imagine for people to be the solutions to their problem. Well, you know, we'll hook your kid on phonics. We'll get your kid to behave when he's in school. We'll do this. We'll do this. Anything, any kind of self-help thing that we can imagine, we'll, we'll concentrate on anything but introducing them to that person that that woman, well, that that woman goes to town, she leaves her water pot, she, says, she obviously is saying, I'll be right back. She runs to town, she gathers the men, and the men she gathers are who? Well, likely five of them have been her husband. And one of them she lives with and isn't her husband. And all the other men in the town know who she is. And she says to them, Come and see the man that told me everything I ever did. Is this the Messiah? And you know, those men went to hear. Why? Why? Well, I think why is because that woman, they understood her to be uh, a traveling uh, terminal cancer victim. And she came into that city, and they all looked at themselves, and in some way, they, they uh, completely identified with her because they were all traveling terminal cancer victims as well. They had something completely in common with her, something they could not cure, something they could not fix. And she came to town, and she said, I've got a cure. 
absolute cure, the Messiah. He read my mail. He told me he had come to save the world. And they said, whoa, that's something I want to get in on. And they went out to the well, and Jesus spoke to them, and after it was done, what did they say? We don't need to hear what you said now. We have heard him for ourselves. We know that this is the Messiah. He told us everything we had ever done. He read our mail, and we found life in him. Sinners Matthew Henry says that this woman was big with expectation of the Messiah. He's using the analogy of her being pregnant. He says she was big with expectation of the Messiah. Why? Why? Because she had a need. She knew her sin. She understood who she was. And all of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members, they know their sin. And we could go to them and we could tell them about how good we are and how nice we are and how, how we have our act together and how we got this new car and how it's nice that we have this kind of life and this kind of house and this kind of whatever. Or we can go to them and we can say, I know somebody who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I'd like to introduce you to him. I'd like for you to know him. He told me everything I ever did. I'm free from my sin. We have a love. We have a love who loved us first. We have a love who's preparing a banquet for us. We have a love that's not a, a temporary love. It's not going to end in, in the end of our lives. It's not going to end. It's going to pass on into eternity that we will be present with the one we love. We will be present with the Messiah, the one who saved us from our sins. This is the one we want to gather people to. This is the one we want to call people to. This is something worth telling people about. John 10, verse 4 says, When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The voice of Jesus Christ is known by us. If you have met the one who has told you everything you have ever done and has revealed himself to you as the Messiah, the Savior of your life, you know his voice. And you follow him. And other people follow him with you. And you gather other people to him who also hear his voice. This morning we have the privilege of taking communion and remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. And listen, this is the gospel. 
This is God demonstrating his love for us in having his son die for us. This is the provision that he made for us to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. He gave his son. And we remember his son this morning. I want to just set your mind toward this future, toward this year, and every year after, and set your trajectory to to be with God gatherers of people to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's make that our goal. Elders, would you come forward, please?